This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Medical experts are concerned we may see a big resurgence of the seasonal flu this year. The governing PCs at Queen's Park have unveiled the biggest flu campaign ever with a purchase of 7.6 billion flu doses, 1.4 million more than last year, at a cost of $90 million. We ordered 300 doses. That's for two doctors. We received one-third of that, just over 100 doses. Uh And for the most part, they're spoken for. Uh, We're having, you know, people are calling us. They were calling us well in advance of our having received it. And, of course, the high dose, everybody's excited because, you know, the research has shown this is from 2014, to be fair, that it does give a 24% better efficacy. Like, it's a little more effective. And there was a 2013, like, this is getting kind of ancient, don't you think? Study published in The Lancet showing that it also can reduce the risk of hospitalization from influenza. That's why the rush for individuals over 65, who who actually constitute more than half of the hospitalizations historically from influenza. John, what about you? Um, uh, What's your supply of high dose like? Yeah, we're in good supply right now, Libby. And I think the way a vaccine was distributed to community pharmacies was your kind of opening order was half of what you uh, uh, did uh, in the entire flu season last year. So we've got quite a bit of vaccine right now, both high-dose, uh, quadrivalent, uh, trivalent with adjuvant. So we're, we're in, we're in a, a really good supply. I've seen kind of a steady stream of traffic for high-risk seniors, you know, with comorbidities. But I thought, honestly, it would be even busier. So I think... Uh, I think the media is getting behind it right now, so I think there's still a, a, an opportunity for awareness out there. Well, it's it's a, it's still pretty early. I mean, yeah. uh, I I know that uh, I'm usually a flu shot early bird, but it's usually sort of closer to Halloween. And- yeah, it is. It is early, and I think uh, uh, yesterday I know the health minister spoke at one of our stores and kind of announced the opening of the flu campaign for November first. I think once November first comes around. Uh, We'll start seeing uh, bigger lineups for vaccine, but you know if we could get the message out now, if you're high risk, you have comorbidities, things like asthma, COPD, some of these other uh, uh, you know uh, chronic diseases, get in there now because there's actually it's not too bad right now. We're able to, I think, uh, get those high risk patients done first. So you got half the number. Was that for the high dose as well? Half of what you had last yeah. year. Yeah, it was half of kind of everything. And uh, we're able to order, we're self-distributing this year, so we're able to order, uh, you know, more vaccine after the 28th uh, of October. So that doesn't say much. I'm not sure what they'll, you know, have in stock at that point. But for now, I could say with confidence we're in pretty good shape. What concerns me is that people don't realize it takes two weeks for the flu shot to do anything, to actually have an efficacy. It's kind of like the COVID shot. You don't just get it and then you're instantly fixed. You actually have to wait two weeks for the body to build a good immune response to it. 
You know, and we know that as people get older, the immune response does slow down. So my feeling is stay ahead of the curve. This year is not last year. Last year we got lucky. For every thousand cases we normally saw, we saw like one case. The numbers were way down, but society was also completely closed at that time. And now it's it's totally different. Kids are back at school. Businesses are open. People are starting to travel again. This is not at all the same thing. Plus, we've got Delta. Keep in mind that no vaccination is ever perfect. The flu vaccine on a good year will be 60% effective. So breakthrough infections can happen. Side effects, not to diss them at all, but they are pretty rare. We can expect local side effects, minor headache, muscle aches, malaise can happen for up to three days after. My advice, get the vaccine. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a Toronto-based family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and pharmacist John Papasturgio, owner of four Shoppers Drug Mart locations in Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Do you have any food allergies? I developed one later in life to caviar, of all things. Well, according to a report by Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Analytics Lab, food allergies are actually on the rise, with between 2.5 and 3.1 million of us claiming to have at least one food allergy. What exactly is the cause behind this increase? And more importantly, are we confusing food allergies with intolerance to certain foods? Libby asked these questions of our panel of experts, Jennifer Gertz, Executive Director of Food Allergy Canada, Dr. Harold Kim, Associate Professor and Chair, Chief Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at Western University, and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. This is the first time we actually surveyed Canadians on this topic, and I know that Food, uh, Food Allergy Canada has historical data on this issue, but uh, we were able to estimate that, uh, that anywhere between 2.5 to 3.1 million Canadians actually suffer from a food allergy. And for food intolerances, uh, it's over 7 million. And so you just need one person in an household to see many people being affected by by food allergies or intolerances. So it, it is really something that is uh, becoming a problem for a growing number of families uh, in Canada. Dr. Kim, what's the difference between an intolerance and an allergy? So an allergy is when a patient has a specific um, reaction to a food where your body overreacts to the food uh, with an antibody called IgE. And that type of reaction is the one where you associate with anaphylaxis. So, so people having severe reactions, for example, to peanut or to milk. Um, intolerance is a bit more of a vague term. And, and to, to be honest, there's, there's no real definition, uh, for that. Um, it, it's often, um, nonspecific symptoms, um, that are impossible to, um, diagnose or confirm, uh, with medical testing. Um, there are some specific types of intolerances, for example, like lactose intolerance, where your body cannot um, digest milk sugar properly, so you have uh, stomach and, and bowel symptoms. Um, but often the intolerance term is, is used relatively loosely and, and without any firm uh, you know, definition or diagnosis for that. 
Uh, Jennifer Gertz, uh, in terms of the type of the, you know, anaphylactic shock, which is uh, life threatening, are there kind of milder versions of those reactions? Well, there, anaphylaxis is kind of the definition of a most, the most severe allergic reaction. And, and frankly, Dr. Kim could give you uh, the, the clinical de- definition of anaphylaxis, but certainly it involves more than one body system. It's rapid on, in onset, and, you know, it releases histamine in the system as well as other things that triggers things like skin symptoms, respiratory symptoms, gastrointestinal, and cardiovascular. It doesn't have to include all of those things. It, it can include uh, some of those things. But the most severe, like a drop in blood pressure, is something that is considered a severe type of anaphylaxis. The terminology that exists out there today, though, is called anaphylaxis, and it's not broadly understood, and and there's not really good classifications of degrees of anaphylaxis. Yeah, when it comes to Halloween, I mean, I think this is a holiday that every kid totally anticipates and is excited about, and so I guess there's a message to the community to think about how do I make sure that I've got uh, treats that are properly labeled and that I show inclusion and people can take a look at our shine a light campaign uh, on our website uh, for how you can think about where there's tips for Halloween. The other thing I'd like to mention Libby is there's also a really great tool out there called allergycheck.ca and it was done with BC Children's as well as the University of British Columbia. And for people that are confused, if I have an intolerance or an allergy, this is a great tool that walks you through what symptoms are you experiencing. And it takes you to a decision on should I go see an allergist or not. So I'd really encourage people who are confused between that intolerance and allergy a question to go to that site. Uh, Dr. Kim? Yeah, I think it's great. I think information and research is important. And, and I would like to thank uh, Jennifer and Food Allergy Canada and Dr. Charlebois and, and the prevalence research that, that, that Teddy's done. Uh, I think uh, the, the more information we have, the better. And, and I think we are getting better. We have started a national food action plan, and we're trying to, um, to encourage um, the governments to be involved with that. And, and I think that the more um, information, again, I think it'll be better for all of us. Dr. Harold Kim, Associate Professor and Chair, Chief Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at Western University, Jennifer Gertz, Executive Director of Food Allergy Canada, and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, making sense of the new federal recovery benefits. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Thursday, Canada's finance minister and deputy prime minister unveiled a package of measures to replace a suite of pandemic relief programs which expired yesterday. When Fightback went to air on Thursday, Christopher Freeland had just finished delivering the details. Among the changes, the Canada Recovery Benefit ends. But for Canadians who lose their work because of local lockdowns, a new relief benefit will provide $300 a week. And the substitute for the wage and rent subsidies is what the Trudeau Liberals are calling a provision for deep losses— 
10% support for a 50% loss of revenue, and 50% support for a 75% loss of revenue. There's also what is called a hiring program at 50% support. Fightback gathered a panel of stakeholders for early reaction. Alita Solomon, chef and owner of Tutimati Tuscan Restaurant on Adelaide West. Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs. And Daniel Safayeni, VP of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. At a high level, uh, we, we understand that these benefits can't go on indefinitely at this level. Um, at the same time, the pain is ongoing for many businesses, particularly in, in certain sectors. And so the precipitous drop-off or sudden ending of these benefits writ large um, also doesn't really make sense from a policy perspective. So I, I think we're encouraged by at least some of this direction in terms of continuing these to to a certain extent, particularly for those businesses uh, that are still being impacted by public health measures. Larry, what do you think uh, at first glance of this? Uh, I 10% uh, continuation of wage and rent subsidies for a 50% loss in, of revenue. Remember, our industry makes 5% profit. We've been handed a whole bunch of loans by the government over the past 20 months, and those loans are now due and payable. 10% against 50% doesn't work because our expenses are much higher than that. The reality that we asked for was the programs to remain in place, 75% rent, 75% wage, until the, the, the spring of next year. The reality of that is our expenses don't equate to that amount of money being given to us. Remember that we were closed for 400 days during this program, and we weren't able to access the wage subsidy program during that time. We had no employees. We were shut down. So we didn't have the ability to catch up any revenue, any, any profits to help us pay the debt that is now due. We've asked for the debt to be delayed. How can we make the debt on a 10% salary program? It's not going to be enough money. And remember, as of today, we are yet to be opened at 100% 20 months later. And our friends at MLSC and, and various other places are open and trading as normal. So the math, as we look at it immediately, doesn't make sense for us. So we're hoping that, that when they look at this more deeply, there's going to be a more direct involvement to hospitality and to the small businesses that have been shut for so long. We need more help. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, does this look good to you? From a high level, it looks from the taxpayer perspective that this is a good first step from the federal government. We do see this as a good first step. And another thing that we want to acknowledge here is that the federal government is looking at making these subsidies more targeted and less expensive. So from a very high level, acknowledging the massive amount of debt that the federal government is, but also acknowledging the fact that the federal government has made life excruciating hard for so many Canadians um, over the last 18, 19 months, especially for business owners. Um, so acknowledging all of that, this does look like a good first step from the federal government. I am going to bring in Alida Solomon, chef and owner of Tutti Mati in Toronto. I think that people have forgotten that for almost 400 days that restaurants were not able to serve customers. 
and we just need some time to recover. I think what people, we're not asking for a handout, what we're asking for is help and some proper guidance on how to navigate two years of loss. The government has done their best to reach out to large business, such as the airlines, as well as corporate businesses. But for us in the hospitality industry and small business, they've really just forgotten about us. We've had virtually no guidance about how to move forward. And a lot of us, especially in the downtown core, don't have our lunch crowds anymore because a lot of the offices are empty. So we're expected to pay full rent on spaces that are are were, were once filled with people are now only open, you know, for three or four days a week. Alita Solomon, chef and owner of Tutimati Restaurant on Adelaide West, Franco Terrazano of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs, and Daniel Safayeni, VP of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. They were in conversation with Libby on Thursday, soon after the new relief programs were announced. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. A 17-year-old girl crossing the street near her school, Birchmount Park Collegiate. A Zoomer couple sitting in their car in traffic on Parkside Avenue. An 81-year-old man struck by two cars at O'Connor and Pape. All of them killed in just over the last week. There are more people on the roads in their cars, driving more now than they were during the height of the pandemic. But this is not the only reason for recent deadly collisions. A CAA survey blames distracted driving. And what about efforts at the City of Toronto to make the streets safer? Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss. Pedestrian safety advocate Albert Cole, Teresa DeFelice, Assistant Vice President, Government and Community Relations for CAA South Central Ontario, and Toronto City Councillor Gord Perks for Ward 4, Parkdale High Park. A lovely couple who actually, you know, live not far from where I do, lost their lives because the city of Toronto's streets are unsafe and cars go too fast and we don't design our street network for safety, we design it for speed. What do you think would have been necessary on that particular stretch of road? Well, I've been working with the local community on that stretch of road for several years now. We've been able to get a few little incremental improvements, but whenever we try to do something major, we run up against the way that streets and roads are regulated in the city of Toronto and, and frankly, right across Canada. They're designed to move traffic. They're not designed to be safe. Okay, let's uh, bring in Teresa DeFelice. You have a new survey on vulnerable road users, and and what did you find in a nutshell? Thank you. Yes, uh, we conducted a survey uh, earlier this year around uh, what's called vulnerable road users, such a a difficult term, but really this is about uh, people who are on the roads, mostly, you know, pedestrians, cyclists, uh, motorcycles are con- considered in that category. Although most people, some people put drivers in that category as well when it comes to unsafe roads, such conditions and situations. And that, you know, basically, you know, people who are pedestrians, cyclists, motorcyclists are most at risk. Um, you know, the main findings are that, uh, you know, we need to be doing better. There's a lot of distraction that's going on both uh, inside and outside of the vehicle. 
And, and that's probably the, the biggest safety concern and the biggest concern on the minds of Ontarians when it comes to getting around our roads. Albert Cole, uh, do you agree? We, we just heard from Councillor Perks. He says it's the design of the road. And we've heard from the CAA and they're saying it's a lot of distraction. And I have to tell you, when I drive, I see a lot of distraction, a lot of impatience um, and a lot of uh, obstacles, construction. So where do you see the biggest problems? Well, right now what we're seeing in, in Toronto, and I completely agree with uh, Gord, we, we have a system of roads that was built uh, to move cars fast. And uh, what's changed now is uh, our values. Like we have a lot more people walking and cycling. In fact, the majority of people in Toronto now identify walking, cycling, and transit as their main mode of transportation. So it's not surprising that our values have changed. In other words, we no longer accept that people are dying and being seriously injured on the roads. And, and just to give you a, a quick uh, statistic on that, I mean, two years ago before the pandemic, 64 people were killed on our roads. Well, in 1965, and some of your listeners will remember you know, that time, there were 135 people killed in our city and a much smaller population. So what's, what's changed is that today we don't say, as we did then, well, that's just a cost of a modern transportation system. We're willing to accept that. We don't accept that anymore, and it's partly because more people are choosing alternatives to the car, but the, uh, the roads still reflect our old an outdated way of doing things, which is to move as many cars as fast as possible. And the result of that is that death and serious injury. Councillor Gord Perks. I just want to underline it by reminding everybody that the reason there's so little money for making our existing streets safe is we're spending so much money on rebuilding highways we don't need. The gardener comes to mind. The budget for transportation at the City of Toronto to make improvements on our streets has been dropping every year because we're trying to save a minute or two travel time for people driving in from Scarborough. It doesn't add up. We have to make safety the priority. Toronto City Councillor Gord Perks, pedestrian safety advocate Albert Cole, Teresa DeFelice, Assistant Vice President, Government and Community Relations for CAA, South Central Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back. With Jane Brown. Fight back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of the week's best calls. Mary in St. Helens phoned during our food allergy segment. Nothing has changed for me uh, during the pandemic uh, when it comes to ordering in or eating out. I have celiac disease. So... Uh, I have to be hyper vigilant at all times. It doesn't matter if it's in the grocery store, I'm reading labels, or if I'm ordering food uh, for dining in. And my choices actually are quite limited. You know, I can eat salads all the time. That's uh, what restaurants usually say to me when I ask for a gluten-free menu. Oh, you know, here's the salad menu. But you know what? I would enjoy a little bit of choice and be able to have French fries, but uh, fries are... Um, 
put in a fryer with everything else that perhaps has a coating on it or breading. For me, it's uh, the same old, same old. Sam in Toronto phoned with his concerns around pedestrian safety. The rate of construction compared to pre-pandemic when the roads were empty and they pushed for new projects, every major road has a construction sign, construction going on in it. Okay, Part of it can be uh, avoided you know, by just right planning, good planning. You just go out there. You see dump truck after dump truck after dump truck. There's thousands of projects going on in this city, and there's so much that the city can take. You know, I don't know if it's greed or mismanagement or whatever it is. Nobody talks about these permits that the city, city is giving to people. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Anne in Etobicoke, who phoned with her observations as a pedestrian on what she sees as an increase in aggressive drivers. I live in the Kingsway, and what I find is pedestrians crossing on a controlled intersection. The drivers are intimidating, in my opinion, that's how I feel when I'm crossing the road, the pedestrians, because they don't let the pedestrians get too far out of the way before they complete their turn. Hmm, yeah. Whether it's the right turn or left turn. Sometimes um, you're still in the lane or just stepped outside the lane when the driver makes the turn and completes the turn. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.